You can now take KRBN Internet News Talk Radio with you on your mobile phone as we are making it easier to listen to the great hosts here on KRBN, including our very own West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. It's free and available on Google Play. Just look for player.fm. That's player.fm and search for KRBN. Live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bose Nose Show with your host, West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bolchevich. And now, here's Jay. Good afternoon. And it's another beautiful day in the Pacific Northwest, and this is the Bo's Nose Show coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira, Oregon. And this is your host, Jay Bozovich, West Lane County Commissioner. And today we're going to be having a conversation with Susan Lopez of Kids First, but if you want to get in and talk to Susan or myself, you can call the show at 646-721-9887. And that will get you into the show. And just press one, and that lets Robin, my call screener, producer extraordinaire, know that you want to get in on the program. And you can also email us here at uh, talk at krbnradio.net, and we can pick that up even between shows. So if you listen to the show uh, on the archive and you're, you hear this and you have some comment you want to make or suggestion or question, or a suggestion maybe for a guest for another show, just uh, email us at talk at krbnradio.net. You can also find us on Facebook. And again, if you want to call in, it's 646-721-9887. And remember to press one. That lets us know you want to get in on the conversation. So I'm speaking today with Susan Lopez, who is the executive director of Kids First, Welcome to the show, Susan. Thank you, Jay. So real quick, give us the uh, the elevator version of what is Kids First? Yeah, so the, the quick version is um, Kids First is Lane County's Child Abuse Intervention Center. And we serve um, child abuse victims, um, children who are witnesses to crime or victims of crime. Um, we work to help through the investigative process, make sure that the child's voice is heard and advocate for safety for the children and services for the family in order to ensure child safety. That's a, a really important service, and I imagine it's a really um, difficult piece of work for the folks that are actually working with those kids that, that have been victims. Um, so I, I really, um, my my appreciation and heart goes out to all those folks working with those victims. What is your background and how did you end up executive director of, of a, uh, you know, an advocacy and intervention center for, for child victims? So my, my personal background, I, I came from um, actually advocacy, um, mostly in the Latino community. When I first started, um, I was an advocate for monolingual Spanish-speaking families at Centro Latino Americano. And then um, I went to child welfare as a bilingual protective service worker. And I spent about nine years with child welfare doing all different types of protective services, court work, management. And then um, my final year with child welfare, I was at the statewide office um, conducting critical incident response team efforts and um, investigating child fatalities due to abuse, um, coordinating kind of statewide efforts that looked into child fatalities, um, particularly where those children were, were already known to child welfare and um, looking at ways that we could improve processes and services to avoid that in the future, um, future fatalities, and also coordinating um, trauma response teams, and um, also administering a couple of the Children's Justice Act task force um, grant funds and the Child Abuse Prevention and Treatment Act um, grant funds. So, 
it was kind of a windy road, but during my time with child welfare here in Lane County, I worked very closely with um, Kids First and the staff here and um, participated as a forensic interviewer um, through the Domestic Violence Witness Project and then as a supervisor managed CPS workers that were working here at the center and conducting forensic interviews of children. So the pretty solid knowledge of what happens here at Kids First and a huge fan, obviously, of um, what we call the multidisciplinary team approach to child abuse investigations, which means that you have coordination between law enforcement and child welfare and mental health professionals and advocates at Kids First. And we all work together while we investigate these cases to make sure that cases meaning children, don't fall through the cracks of these investigations. So when did you uh, come on to Kids First? How long have you been there? So it'll be three years in August that I've been here at Kids First as the director. Right, and there's been some some changes in, in Kids First over the last couple of years where you guys have gone from uh, kind of being part of, of Lane County government, and now you're a standalone uh, nonprofit. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and kind of why that happened? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, this was a, I kind of walked in at towards the tail end of this process. Um, the board of directors here at Kids First um, had been doing quite a bit of work. Um, so just a little bit of history about how Kids First was formed um, in 1994. Um, the district attorney at that time, um, Doug Harkelroad, um, formed this organization to be kind of the center point for child abuse investigations and really um, fill that gap to make sure that services that are provided to children during the process of investigation of abuse or witnesses to crimes, um, ensuring that, that those children are served properly, that we're reducing trauma through that service, and that um, also as part of that service delivery, we're ensuring that the cases and the information and the interviews that are conducted and the information that's gathered is forensically sound, meaning that when these cases go to trial, they'll stand up um, and, and we can back the process that was used to interview the children, uh, minimize suggestibility and some of the arguments that, that could be made about interviewing children. So. Um, Doug Harker Road formed Kids First, so there was, um, it was actually the Child Advocacy Center of Lane County, and so there was a nonprofit that was formed with a board of directors, and the agreement between the Lane County District Attorney's Office and Kids First was that Kids First was receiving grant funds, but that Lane County under the DA's office would help um, with staffing and um, kind of manage, manage the staff, manage the programming of the center. So when I came on board in 2014, um, the board had done some work um, in the recent years. I think they started around 2012, working with a group out of California called the Nonprofit Finance Fund. And there was a, a grant that was kind of a, an interesting um, project put together by Meyer Memorial Foundation and the Ford Family Foundation. And they contracted with Nonprofit Finance Fund out of California to look at critical safety net issues and organizations within communities to determine, you know, what is the business model of these organizations, where are their vulnerabilities, and where could they be strengthened in order to ensure that regardless of what happens, um, that our business models are diverse enough to allow us to maintain critical services no matter what happens in government um, so that we're not so heavily reliant on government funding for service provision. And so Kids First Board of Directors um, really jumped in there and worked really closely with Nonprofit Finance Fund. And through that work, the Nonprofit Finance Fund, you know, through their assessment of our financial standing and services and, um, and uh, business model that we really needed to diversify our funding streams because we were about at that point 
about 99% grant funded. And as an organization, it left us very vulnerable to fluctuations in state funding and federal funding. And of course, if you all, I'm sure everyone remembers in 2007 when the economy tanked a bit, um, the next biennium, um, especially state funding, was hit significantly, which um, caused some really critical um, problems for Kids First because of our heavy reliance on those funds. So um, the advice from Nonprofit Finance Fund was that you know Kids First should really look to um, kind of disconnect the, the agreement between Lane County um, because there was a perception within our community that we didn't need to do fundraising because we were funded by Lane County, which was not actually the case. We were funded by grants that were provided through reimbursements from criminal fees and assessments um, statewide level, but the, the board had encountered difficulty in trying to secure funding or even local community support because of this misperception. And so the Nonprofit Finance Fund, through their work, determined you know, really the best situation for Kids First to be in would be to be a standalone nonprofit and really start going after community support independently and um, engage our community in conversations because it would not only strengthen our service provision, but it would also diversify our, our business model um, and allow us to serve more children and lead to more financial stability for the organization so that we could continue providing these really vital safety net services for children in our community. Well, that, that's pretty interesting. And it's, um, it also, I know that uh, there is a, a, a new funding stream from the state that has to go to, to nonprofits only for victim services that can't go to a county agency. So being a separate, um, a clearly separated nonprofit also even helped in getting that, that um, portion of the justice reinvestment grant funding that Lane County gets that goes to victim services. So yeah. it's uh, been beneficial. So just to remind folks, this is the Bose Nose Show, and we're talking with Susan Lopez, who is the Executive Director of Kids First. And if you want to talk to Susan, you can call in at 646-721-9887 and just press 1, and that lets us know you want to get in on the show. And I got a question from uh, Mimi, who wants to know about volunteers, um, you know, what, what they do for the agency and uh, what are the requirements to volunteer? Yeah, that's a great question. And and um, I think we, we absolutely love our volunteers. Um, we couldn't actually provide our full scope of services without our volunteers. Um, historically, we have relied on our volunteers to fill the gap between what the personnel that we've been able to fund and the personnel that we actually need to serve the number of children we do annually, which is around 700 children. So our volunteer victim advocates are um, critical to service provision, and these um, victim advocates are trained. They go through a 32-hour training um, that's hosted here at Kids First. We have community partners that come in and train throughout the um, walking people through the legal process, the child welfare investigative process, and then, of course, all of the services that we offer here at Kids First, as well as training about child abuse and, um, and trauma and adverse childhood experiences. So our victim advocates are, are highly trained um, after they're trained um, they put in quite a bit of time um, shadowing um, our paid staff advocates, and then our advocates shadow them while they actually interact and work one-on-one -on -one with families to provide um, victim advocacy. And really what that looks like is walking you know, with this family. You're the first person that greets this family. Um, you walk them through this process. You sit with them during all of the services they're receiving at Kids First. And then you follow up with them and you're checking in with them to make sure that they're doing okay and providing updates to our local multidisciplinary team, getting updates from our law enforcement and child welfare 
um, as needed by the family and then relaying that information back. So these are really, it's a really critical piece of what we do because what we know about trauma, obviously, is that when you're in trauma, it's difficult to absorb information. And so for family families who um, particularly are going through crisis at the moment, which most of the families that come here are, um, you know, no one's ever happy that they're here. Um, people are here because something bad has probably happened to their child, and that's a difficult situation to be in. So our advocates do a really great job of being there, being a friendly face for the family, answering questions. If they don't know the questions, they get the, if they don't know the answers, they get the answers um, from law enforcement or child welfare or the district attorney's office. And we kind of serve um, in the role of advocate um, through grand jury process. Um, so we're, we're able to offer our services to help guide families through the legal process up to that stage. And then we hand off the family to a victim advocate through the district attorney's office. So that sounds like all those questions. Oh, <laughs> I think you did, did did a pretty wonderful job. Um, it sounds like it's a very um, almost like a, a, a court appointed special advocate, you know, the CASAs, but a, a little bit more specialized and, and um, a little bit more intimately involved with the family, not so much just a, a kid in the foster care system. Um, right. It really, um, you know, my hat's off to those volunteers, you know, that are willing to do that. So, mm -hmm. you know, how, how does somebody end up, um, you know, uh, how do you guys, how do cases kind of get initiated and, 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 and end up at kids first? Is that, uh, a, a doc, you know, a pediatrician get suspect something or a teacher or, you know, a police officer responding to a domestic violence incident or something suspects something or, or even a um, child welfare person, it, you know, how does it get to you guys? And then, and, and then what, what process does the family and the child go through? Kind of walk, walk me through that, you know, from the, how, how things get initiated and then what sort of happens and, and from the kid's point of view, what happens? Yeah, absolutely. So we have um, several, multiple ways, obviously, that, that families can can be referred here for services. Um, the most typical is through either a child welfare investigation or a law enforcement investigation. So at some point, a child um, makes a disclosure of abuse or um, someone suspects abuse. Um, and most of the cases that come here are potentially criminal. Um, or have an element of criminality involved in them um, because we require law enforcement participation for our services. Um, so um, that could be sexual assault of a child, sexual abuse. Um, it could be um, witness to a domestic violence incident. It could be physical abuse. It could be criminal neglect. It could be witness to homicide. Um, and multitude other um, multitude other situations. So what would happen is, um, let's say a, a typical case, um, a child discloses to a counselor at school about something that happened in their home. Um, the counselor from the school calls law enforcement and or child welfare to report as a mandatory reporter, you know, what the child has said. So. Um, Sometimes patrol might might take that initial report. Sometimes the report gets assigned immediately to a detective. Um, we get a phone call then from the detective usually um, who is assigned um, to schedule the interview. So the interview, um, forensic interview, is basically um, law enforcement's interview of the victim. Um, they bring the child, the family, to our center. They schedule that with the family and child welfare if they're involved are present as well. And they meet uh, law enforcement and child welfare, um, meet the family at our center. So um, 
the case gets scheduled to come in, our advocates greet the family when they arrive, um, walk them back to a family waiting area that is designed to be inviting and warm and obviously very child-friendly. And the advocate explains the process to the family. Um, of course, there's some paperwork to fill out initially. And then um, law enforcement and child welfare meet with the parents while an advocate stays with the child. And the role of, um, of this meeting is for law enforcement, child welfare, our forensic interviewer, and our advocate to meet with the parents and explain in more depth the process of what was, what's going to happen, answer any questions or concerns the family might have about this process, and also to gauge um, where the child's at um, at that point in time regarding the abuse um, because it's um, helpful for our team to know. Um, sometimes children aren't ready to talk and if we know that ahead of time, um, we can prepare differently. Um, sometimes children, you know, the parent will say, you know, they can't stop talking about it, so it shouldn't be hard. Um, and so it's, it's important for the team to know, you know, what has the child said to the parent, um, because the parent is actually not in that interview. Um, when the interview starts after that and meeting with the parent, um, they all go back to the family waiting area, and the interviewer um, asks the child to come with them, and they go into a room, and the interviewer talks to the child. Um, they're trained in child development. They, um, our interviewers are, you know, fabulously professional and um, really know how to talk to children about some very difficult things. And the questions that they have to ask are the questions that any law enforcement would have to ask about a, uh, a crime, right? So the who, what, when, where, why, how many times, um, who, um, who else knows about this, um, you know, all of the details of the abuse um, get discussed with the forensic interviewer. And in the other room, you have law enforcement and child welfare observing the interview so that they're getting all of the information that they will need for their investigations in order to make some safety decisions for the child and the family. And of course, then, um, potential criminal follow-up by law enforcement. And then, of course, um, that interview is recorded, um, audio, video recorded, and submitted by the detective to the district attorney's office as evidence of that child's interview for the purposes of that investigation. So then the district attorneys use that um, information and evidence um, to determine if they need to take the case to grand jury and or um, if there will be criminal charges proceeding from the interview. Now, you mentioned a couple things in there about your facility um, where the, there's a family waiting area that has to be child and family friendly and welcoming, and then there's these, an interview room, you know, where the child is actually, you know, goes into that room with a stranger, the interviewer, and, and uh, mm -hmm. has to talk about some really difficult subjects. Yeah. It, your facility, it's, it's really uh, important um, how it's designed and, 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 um, and there's actually even some uh, statutory requirements around all this, but it's, it's, it's about trying to minimize the, the trauma to the child or having to, you know, they're going to have to kind of relive this this abuse or, or uh, crime that they witnessed. Um, talk to me a little bit about how important your facility is. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's really important, um, Jay. I mean, you know, um, these stories that, that these kiddos have to share are not easy. Um, it wouldn't be easy for an adult to talk about these things. And, in fact, many adults, now probably have stories like this to share that they've never shared in their life. And so um, what we do know is that this process of, of sharing what's, what's happened is the first step on that road, road to healing for these children. So we really do make this an inviting um, and warm environment. 
Um, children obviously are in control. We do not have secrets from these children. They know that it's that um, the conversation is being recorded. They know who's listening to these conversations. They're in control of the interview. If they say, I'm done and I don't want to be here, they get to leave. Um, we really try to give children their power back um, through this process because, um, as you know, children have very little power anyway. And um, through the process of abuse, they get even more power taken away. So we hope that, that we give children their voice back um, by listening to them, by hearing them out, by giving them a safe space to express their feelings and concerns. And, you know, that starts with the forensic interview and, um, and leads even into the forensic medical exam where some children, um, if there, have, there has been sexual assault or physical abuse or some kind of injury or significant medical neglect, we have a physician who is specially trained to provide medical exams for those children. And she also understands trauma and how trauma works with children and development and um, particularly for, you know, the growth, growth curve um, of uh, particularly small children and what neglect um, and physical abuse and witnesses to, um, to violent acts, what kind of trauma that can do psychologically, but also how that might physically express itself in a developing child. So, you know, the physical environment of the forensic interview room, the family waiting area, the medical exam room is, is significantly important to what we do to make sure that children feel like this is a safe place and it's a place where they can come and be in control. And things are their height, things are appropriate for them, no matter what age they're at. Um, we serve children all the way from two weeks up to 18 years old. So um, we, we want to, re we make a very concerted effort to be age appropriate, no matter what age a child is at and development stage they're at. Yeah, and that, and that will probably get into some discussion in a minute about your need for possibly new facilities in the future because of uh, uh, a little bit of a squeeze, space squeeze you're having there in your existing mm -hmm. facility. But uh, I want to remind folks that this is the Bozno Show. And if you want to get on the conversation, you can call us at 646-721-9887. And we actually have a caller that has a question. Uh, Mimi, uh, I understand that you, you uh, have a question for Susan. I have a couple of them. Um, Great. It says in, on your um, Facebook page, well, not Facebook page, but on your page on the Internet, that the minimum that you require is four hours. How much time do you want somebody to volunteer, or what is your desired amount of time per day, per week? Yeah, we... We actually would love our volunteers to to be here as much as they can. Um, we, you know, one of the things that we do know about this work is that it's difficult and it's hard. And so, what what might work for one person might not be appropriate for someone else. And and so, working with families and trauma can be challenging. So, four hours a week is is a pretty um, big commitment to ask. But you know, we have some volunteers who, at times, have volunteered up to twenty hours a week. Um, depending on what's going on and how many volunteers and interns we have um, to help fill that need. Mm -hmm. So, um, so what no amount of time is too much. <laughs> what are the requirements? for, Like for me, for instance, I'll give you my background. I volunteered in the early 80s for the district attorney's office in Salem under Dale Penn for battered and abuse, sexually molested children and women and victims of homicide and rape. And I actually went to court with them. We used anatomical dolls. We did all those kind of things. Um, my youngest child was six months old, which was really kind of hair-raising hair to me. But And mm -hmm. my first thing, they would call me. I'd read the police report and go in there. And then I had to visit the homes and help them through court and show up in court. And I was wondering, is that the kind of things that would I would be doing if I volunteered? Yeah, so we... Our advocates don't don't typically do home visits, but they do um, sometimes do transportation for families with our um, paid staff advocates. Um, yeah, you definitely would be reading the police report, 
talking with law enforcement and child welfare ahead of time, making sure that you know as much information as you can to adequately support the family. Um, you know, our processes, obviously we do a thorough background check of anyone who works in our organization or volunteers here. Mm -hmm. We um, also conduct child welfare background checks on everyone um, annually. And um, we also do interviews um, because, you know, one of the things that we've discovered is sometimes people want to volunteer um, because of personal experience, but sometimes mm -hmm. um, people don't realize maybe there's a personal experience or trauma um, that could be triggering um, by being here and helping these families. So we kind of try mm -hmm. to help people figure that out for themselves and assess that during our, our interview process because um, it's challenging work and, and it, will, um, it will consume you if you let it. And, it drains you, um, yes, it does. Um, yes. I got interested because when my children were stolen when they were very young, one was under a year old, and I got them back at 9 and 10 after a horrific, they were molested and raped and put on drugs, and I got them back, and that's what got me interested, and that's why I volunteered, mm -hmm. is I was hoping that I could help somebody else. Wow, Mimi, thank you for sharing your story. That's, I'm so sorry that that happened to you and your family. Ugh. Well, it, it was interesting, let's put it that way. But I did, from Oregon, not have to go to Oklahoma, and I got him put in prison for five years. And now he's in prison for 260 years for the same things. Wow. So, wow. But I would be interested, the only problem, and I'll say it, I guess, on live air, because I'm very honest, is... I did have a drunk driving ticket, so you guys probably would not want me to drive people around. I know that's kind of something that they're concerned about, but that mm -hmm. would be my only thing. Yeah. Yeah, we definitely, we have um, on our website, if you've been to kidsfirstcenter.net, um, we do have the application on there, I believe. Um, oh, okay. And so typically we do... Um, solicitations around fall and spring. So I know we've just finished um, a training process, but mm -hmm. um, I know we'll have another one in the fall. So for anyone who's interested in, in getting involved and for yourself, Mimi, um, you definitely can look on our website. I believe it's under the um, resources tab um, okay. on the website, and you can get information there. Um, about what we what we Actually, do and how to be involved. Okay, yeah. and I fill out the um, application on the website. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Yeah, it's a download. And then, um, okay. Yeah. It looked like it was a download when I got to your website there. Yeah, okay. I've got it pulled up right now. It's been a while now. since I've clicked <laughs> on it. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> okay, well, I will look at this and... Um, see I'm retired so I do have some time on my hands and I'm a little bored so that would be a good thing okay. for me I love the children great uh, well, Mimi. thank you for sharing your story oh you're uh, thank you thank you Mimi for calling um, gosh wow I can't imagine having my kids stolen I, uh, for me I, I my wife and I don't have kids so we um, it, it a lot of times it, it's you know it I, it's hard for me to imagine that because I'm not a parent you know I, I would just it it would I, I would be crazy I think I'm, so I'm I'm impressed that Mimi has survived that um, you know she's she's a victim also um, absolutely so and, and right. just. You know, kudos to her for one getting involved in helping other victims uh, back in the '80s, and then wanting to possibly get involved again here uh, now that she's retired and has more time. So, um, absolutely. Yeah, th those are those are the folks that make your agency go. Right, right. And you know, I think this is a perfect opportunity also to mention. You know, one of the other services we provide is parent education and support group because. We do know that it's not just the child who's impacted, but, you know, especially when uh, particularly sexual abuse is perpetrated by a family member, the the spouse who's not, we call them the non-offending spouse um, or parent, um, you're kind of, they're kind of left in this limbo situation of feeling um, 
in some ways that they had some part in this, um, feeling guilty for not recognizing it earlier, um, for the fact that it happened. So the parents are going through their own trauma and grieving. And this, you know, education and support group is great for parents who, who qualify for that program to have a group of people who are in similar situations and they can kind of work through that and process their own grief and their own trauma while their children are having fun and doing some really fun activities and crafts and the parents can get some, some significant, you know, help in how to process and what kind of behaviors to expect from their children and, and what those different things might look like down the road. So those are another great service that we offer. Yeah, yeah, and it and it'd be great, you know, as as you offer those, you know, family counseling and how to, you know, deal with your the your, not only your personal grief but also, you know, how your child's going to react and trying to deal with that. Well, if it's handled well, that child will go on to a normal adulthood and and won't in turn end up being an abuser, um, as many victims of child abuse tend to be abusers in adulthood, uh, uh, quite often sometimes, um, it, 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 it helps break that cycle. And hopefully, you know, I, I'm a conversation we've had separately before was you, you'd hope to one day work yourself out of the victim advocacy portion and just be a prevention, uh, nonprofit, but that's going to take a while yet. Yeah. Yeah. And I will say, you know, I think, um, recent research has really shown that, you know, the majority of children that, that have been victims don't go on to abuse, but, but there are, you know, unfortunate cycles of abuse, particularly with neglect that are, that are pretty insidious. Um, and, uh, and I think it's, it's hard for, for families to break some of those cycles for sure. And yeah, we would definitely love to work ourselves out of a job here at Kids First for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you mentioned earlier as we were talking about your, you know, uh, how the process works. You mentioned something about grand jury, um, yeah. And that that grand jury actually happens right there at the kids' first um, facility. And, and is that is that's one of the few grand juries that doesn't meet at the courthouse. Uh, is there a reason why they meet right there? Is it because the um, the kids can then, if they do need to actually uh, interview the, the kids or the family, that it, that's part of why they meet at, at your facility? Or is it just for convenience of that's where the investigators are? Um, it's actually for, um, it's part of the minimizing trauma for children. Um, so, um, you know, we... We have the children come there for the forensic interview. Um, sometimes they come back for a medical exam. And so it's already a place that the child knows is safe and the family's familiar with our um, services. And so offering um, grand jury services on site is really a nod towards acknowledging, you know, one, how, how traumatic just the, the whole legal process can be and really working towards mitigating that trauma for children and parents. So, you know, the child and family come back to our center. They have the same advocate sitting with them through grand jury, um, answering questions, and it's also an opportunity to kind of do a handoff to um, the, new, the new victim advocate from the district attorney's office who's going to kind of take over after grand jury if they get a true bill and um, who will help guide them through then the, the court process and um, the legal process that comes after grand jury. But it's really, you know, we have a, a very warm and inviting grand jury room as opposed to downtown at the courthouse, which could be pretty scary and intimidating for, for small children for particularly. I mean, it's, it's intimidating for a professional, as I've testified um, in grand jury hearings um, from time to time throughout my career. And um, it can be intimidating as a professional. I can't imagine being a child and going into that grand jury room at the courthouse and having to testify about what happened. So it's it's really a great feature that we offer here in Lane County and not, um, I believe, we're the only child 
Abuse Intervention Center in the state of Oregon that actually offers that on site, and it's a great service that we have here. Yeah, ex excellent. I mean, it just it's kind of part of the quality of, of, of your particular agency. So, how many, and, and uh, this is probably doesn't, it probably changes year to year, but just how many kids do you guys see in a year? Yeah, we average um, around 700 children a year. Um, oh my God. And, yeah, and that's Lane County children. Um, because we, we only work doing direct service um, with children in Lane County. So it's a significant number, and I'm sure that for most people that would be a shocking number. Um, what I will also say is that doesn't even encapsulate all of the children that are be, you know, being abused in our county or all the children that aren't being um, served through our center. So there's a lot of other child welfare investigations and law enforcement investigations potentially that aren't even coming here. Hmm. Wow, 700, that, that's a staggering number when you think about it as yeah. you, know, you think about Lane County's a little bit larger than 350,000 people. That's, you know, two tenths of a percent of our population. Yeah. And that's, that's on an annual basis. That's, that's, wow. Yeah. Didn't, yeah. <laughs> but I it's, guess, you it's know. It's a high it, number. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. So <laughs> as, as you think about some of these cases, is there, are there some consistent drivers on some of them? Particularly, I would say, um, not, not so much the, the sex abuse, but the, the neglect sort of cases. Is there is is, is there um, are the parents uh, involved in in drug abuse or something where they're neglecting their kids? Uh, you know, what what seems to drive this? The, what are some of the drivers behind um, the cases you see? Yeah, I would say um, about two-thirds of the cases that we see here are sexual abuse cases. And so, you know, um, it's it's challenging because there there's obviously multiple um, factors there. A, a lot of, um, I guess one thing I will say is, you know, the, the whole concept of stranger danger is completely been debunked. Um, the people that you need to worry about sexually abusing your children are not strangers. They're people that are in your life, potentially family members, um, who have access to your children. And so um, I think, you know, the most important thing parents can do is educate yourself um, and your children about um, your, your, the, your child's body, you know, and that no one has the right to touch them. I think it's really challenging for parents, especially if you grew up, you know, more in my era where it was, you know, you're told it's the, the guy who rolls up in the van who's going to, you know, kidnap you and sexually abuse you. And and I think that did a lot of damage um, for families because then they start looking externally and not internally um, and recognizing or responding perhaps to abuse, sexual abuse um, that occurs in the family. So um, that's family members, that's family friends. It's significant others, um, parents, um, who are the ones that are perpetrating this abuse by and large on all all accounts for all types of abuse, um, particularly for sexual assault as well. Mm. Physical abuse is, you know, I would say majority of physical abuse cases are, you know, caregiver and care provider, whether that's a babysitter or a parent. Um, and yeah, there are there are um, some common themes in some cases of substance abuse for neglect issues um, or mental health issues, um, and and that can be the case for some families and some dynamics. For others, it's not, and you know it's um, it's hard to use that as a sole predictive factor, but there are definitely risk factors um, that are involved with any of those activities. And even if, um, you know, particularly with substance abuse, if, if you're under the influence of substances, it's definitely harder to pay close attention to who has access to your child and what's happening with your child. So, um, you know, you definitely, 
increase your risk of something happening to your child if you're under the influence and trying to supervise your children. Yeah. So um, after, you know, you, you guys have gone through your investigation, uh, something goes through grand jury process, uh, goes to court, you guys assist, you know, in the, in the child, you know, you know, testimony or whatever, and the case is closed. Is there any follow-up you all do with um, the children? Uh, you talked about the, the follow-up you guys do with, with the parents uh, and families of, of an abused kid, but is, is there any continuing contact past the uh, closing of a case, so to speak? Yeah, right now we don't actually, Jay, and, and part of that is, you know, what you referred to a couple times with our issues around um, space in our facility, um, it really impacts our bandwidth as an organization. And so that's one of the areas that we're looking to grow is, you know, looking at what other services can we offer these families outside of that direct intervention, including mental health assessments um, or mental health services that will be ongoing for the child after the abuse. And right now we're making referrals to community partners, but we really, as an organization, I think, feel the need to offer more in the realm of follow-up for kiddos. So, so it's yeah. an important and area of growth for us for the future. Yeah. So that kind of leads us back to your facility, which is kind of cramping your style, so to speak, right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it, 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 you guys had kind of a little bit of extra room because you were taking up half of a, you know, of a building that was, and the other half was sort of empty and you got a lot kind of were had used up part of that other half of the building, but that other half of the building now is getting um, going to be utilized by another program called uh, the Phoenix program, uh, which is a uh, addiction treatment for minors that, that looking glass runs another great um, nonprofit in our community. But um as you're, you're having to kind of double people up in offices, um, I saw you showed me a coat closet that's going to be somebody's office, uh, mm -hmm. basically. Um, yeah. Your grand jury room is now going to be your training room and multiple other things. And 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 um, you used to have, you know, you had the ability to have two separate family waiting rooms, and now you're going to be down to one. Um, so you're you guys eventually going to need your own facility. And, uh, and with that, I, I imagine you guys have thought start are starting to think about maybe a capital campaign and, and uh, additional grants, et cetera. Um, what's kind of some of the long-term strategy around um, getting the facility to match the the services and the need um, for for your organization? Yeah, we definitely you know we're working. Our board is obviously, you know, very motivated um, by the squeeze um, that that's going to be caused by the um, DYS uh, Phoenix program coming in the back of the building, and and you know we will we'll be looking at um, you know potential other kind of interim spaces that we could we could possibly use, um, but we definitely you know as um, as the board had made some strategic decisions around, you know, increasing our capacity within our community, um, really making some concerted efforts to be more, have more of a presence in our community and, and get support from our community for the services that we provide and have been providing since 94. Um, and so, you know, part of that is, is obviously fundraising. We've got a couple events coming up. We've got Wintasia, which is July 29th. And that's a, a fantastic wine event out at Sylvan Ridge. And, you know, people can buy tickets for that. Um, it's at kfwinetasia.com if you want more information. We've also got, um, there's a Feynman Charity Golf Marathon um, in September that is also a fundraiser for Kids First. Um, so all of these efforts are really, you know, not just fundraisers, but also friend raisers in that we, are looking to educate our community about the valuable services we're providing and and let them know that, you know, 
you probably never thought about it, but, but once you know that we're here, I'm sure you're grateful that we exist and, and are available to provide the services that we do provide for the families. So um, we're really looking to um, expand our, our, kinda, our friends within the community and our connections within the community so that we can really look at long-term, you know, um, what's going to be best for this organization and um, design a, a facility um, that will work for work best for our families and our community partners. Yeah, I think that's a really important thing. And again, that, let's let's review the the event that's that's coming up the soonest that people can participate in yeah. fundraising. That's the Wine Tasia event at Sylvan Ridge, and that was yeah. June 29th. And July 29th. You can find yeah. July 29th. Sorry. July 29th, so I don't want to make people think it's it's coming too soon. July 29th, and you said that's KF Wintasia is a website? Mm-hmm. Yeah, or you can or, find it on our Kids First website as well. If you if you go to the homepage, there should be a link there, too. Um, so kfwintasia.com, and so it's, it's not your typical fundraiser in that there's no silent auction and no paddle raises. It's just great wine, and we've got some fabulous restaurants that are going to be offering food and competing for your vote as um, People's Choice Award. Um, we've got um, Sauce Fly, Carte Blanche, Pepe and Gianni's, Long's Meat Market, Los Potrillos, Marche, Spice and Steam, um, and we've got Hop Valley, Wildcraft Ciders, and um, Umqua Dairy is going to be offering some yummy dessert. So. Um, all of these um, vendors are going to be offering their food for you to sample. Um, and then, of course, you get to vote on who your favorite is. We've also got a nice little um, raffle that we'll be selling tickets for at the event. Um, we've got some wonderful prizes by um, Sylvan Ridge. Um, has uh, offered, I think it's a wine club membership. Um, we've also got some... A, a donation from Skis Jewelers that will be part of that raffle. So we're pretty excited. It's going to be a, a really wonderful event, and it's you know presented by Northwest Community Credit Union, and we've got some great sponsors. So you might might have heard the ads on Cumulus. Um, they've been running quite a few ads, it sounds like, lately about the event. So we're really excited. Great. Yeah, and, it, and I've been to an event out there at Sylvan Ridge, and it's a wonderful place to go for, for an evening of uh, yeah. uh, dining and all that. So I, you might see me out there. Perfect. Never know. I hope we do. I hope we do. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, a, it's, a great, it's a great, you know, it was one of the first wineries in, in Lane County when you mm -hmm. think about it. Sylvan, Sylvan yeah. Ridge was there before King Estate. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Um yeah, started started by the Chambers family. Um and uh I I don't know if they're still involved in it at all, but it's uh mm -hmm. you know, it's it's the grand old old lady of, of wineries in Lane County and mm -hmm. because of that it's got a really beautiful uh setting out there off of Briggs Hill yeah. Road. So it's uh yeah. yeah. Really, really wonderful setting. Uh, sounds like you got some wonderful restaurants. You know, I, I've, I've, you know, you go down the list and you kind of, I've, I've been to almost all of those. Haven't yep. been to Spice and Steam. <laughs> so that one I haven't yeah. been to yet. But, uh, yeah. you know, Marche and, and uh, Pepe and Johnny's, yeah, I've been been there. <laughs> yeah, so, um, delicious. Yeah, but it sounds like, you know, that, that there's really um, – with you know, if you guys are dealing with 700 kids a year, and you think about everything for, that you've walked us through in that process over that time, that's a lot of staff time and commitment. You, you know, from the forensic interviews to the uh, medical uh, exams to grand jury processes to actually going through the court cases, um, you 700 times that many hours. Um, uh, yeah. that's a lot a lot of work you guys get done in our community to help kids and uh, 
and you know we really appreciate that um, the work you guys do i know i i i'm one of these people i you know, i love animals but i could never be a veterinarian because i would die trying to deal with with you know the the empathy of the the, the animals every day that are that are yeah. aren't feeling good and all that stuff i just it would it would it would kill me to do. And I think I'd be the same way dealing with kids that have been abused. I, it, I, 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 I don't, I don't know how you guys can disconnect. Um, do you have to provide um, your staff and the volunteers with, with, um, you know, kind of counseling on how to do that? Yeah, we definitely, you know, we, we support each other because um, we're all in it together. And, and, you know, even our law enforcement and um, child welfare staff, you know, we're, we're definitely all on the same page with, with exposure to trauma ourselves. So vicarious trauma and burnout is, is definitely a big piece of, of what staff here can experience. Um, you know, our, our board has definitely made some investments in trying to ensure that our staff have access to services when they need that including, you know, employee assistance programs and um, a really great benefit plan that allows staff to get counseling and therapy as needed um, because this, this work can wear on you and, and it is hard to hear day in and day out about children um, living through some pretty horrific circumstances and, um, and it, can, it can definitely be triggering and what we also know about trauma is you can't really control when it's going to sneak up on you. So um, we really try to to prevent that from happening and, and allow staff to take some um, personal leave and time off to allow for them to care for themselves and um, be proactive about um, vicarious trauma and burnout. So I, I really want to say I appreciate you and your staff and your volunteers' work. And I want to give you an opportunity for any final thoughts and contact info if people want to get a hold of you about volunteering or contributing to um, uh, Kids First. Uh. Yeah, thank you. We So you definitely, you know, at any time can visit our website, um, www.kidsfirstcenter.net. And um, it's a pretty comprehensive website. You know, we had a lot of help from Simon Group um, getting that started. And... Um, really trying to make it interactive. It's also available in Espanol, so for families that maybe are not um, primarily um, English-speaking, there's also resources on our website in Spanish. Um, we, yeah, appreciate donations, obviously, um, and support of our community, and support can look very different. You know, some people might be interested in board work or committee work, or volunteering at an event. And so on our website, there's the ability for you to kind of um, contact us and let us know if you want to be on a mailing list, if you want to volunteer for an event or help out with advocacy, um, whatever your level of interest is, um, we can definitely accommodate that. Our phone number for our organization is 541-682-3938. And, you know, we've got Wintasia coming up in July. We've got the Feynman Charity Golf Marathon in September. So um, that website's onedayonehundredholes.com, and it's 100 holes of golf in one day, <laughs> which is quite a bit. And if you want, if you're into golf, um, you can sign up to be a golfer on that site. Um, you pledge to raise a thousand dollars for kids first, and then you have fun golfing all day with your friends. So um, we appreciate any support and um, definitely want our community's goodwill and um, you know tell your friends if they're interested in volunteering we can always use the extra help well great i want to thank you for coming on the bose nose show uh, we've been speaking with susan Le lopez uh, executive director of kids first uh, center and uh, you guys do some great work, and as I posted on the website, you're probably one of the least known nonprofits in Lane County. So thank you for coming on and letting people know more about your, your group. Thank you, Jay. Yeah, we are the best-kept secret, I think. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's about it for the Bose Nose Show. Uh, next week, it's going to be a free-for-all uh, 
whatever you want to talk about. I'm not going to have a guest next week. So we'll talk to you next week. That's it for the Bose Nose Show. Good night from beautiful downtown Elmira, Oregon.